So here's my deal. If you know where we, Nebraskans, can reliably gather to build a climate movement, please tell me. If you know where we can listen to the voices of other Nebraskans, activists and academics, entrepreneurs and executives, politicians and pastors, students and seniors, express who they are and what they believe and do about climate change, please tell me. If you know where to find a real conversation with climate skeptics, please tell me. At a loss? So was I. So am I. Which is why I, Jesse Starita, created The Dew Point, a new podcast that I hope will answer some of these questions and ask others in order to build a more connected, informed, and inspired Nebraska climate community. Visit Enacts, that's E-N-A-C-T-S dot org, to learn more about the show and movement. Listen, if there are podcasts about soap carving and Call of Duty black ops, then shouldn't there be one on the biggest shared challenge and opportunity we have as Cornhuskers and as humans? Well, at least that's how I feel. Okay, well, I'm really thrilled to welcome my guest uh, today. He is Dr. Ed Cahoon, who's the George W. Holmes University Professor of Biochemistry at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, uh, where he also serves as the director of the Center for Plant Science Innovation. I love the name of that center. So what, what pulled me towards Ed and his research is that um, recently he received a four-year, $450,000 project to research renewable aviation fuels from the USDA. And uh, unlike ethanol or biodiesel that we're all pretty familiar with and they've been mainstreamed you know, into our consciousness and gas tanks for a number of years, renewable aviation fuels are less conspicuous, but they're really important when it comes to decarbonizing aviation and making air travel more sustainable. With that, a good aviation metaphor seems appropriate. Ed, if you'd like to join me for takeoff with this first question and, you know, a little bit more of a personal question about your background and, you know, where you grew up and how did you ultimately develop an interest in the field in which you're now a professor? Thank you, Jesse. Uh, so I grew up in uh, Eastern Virginia on a dairy farm and we later shifted to uh, growing corn and soybeans. And I was always involved with having a large vegetable garden for the family. And we had a lot of forest and uh, interesting things to see. And I always really appreciated plants and the chemical diversity that you see in plants. And so I, I did my uh, bachelor's degree at, uh, at, excuse me, at Virginia Tech in the Department of Biochemistry. But I also studied in agronomy and horticulture and tried to learn as much as I could about plants. I was really interested in chemical, biochemical pathways and trying to discover new biochemical pathways for interesting compounds. And so, yeah, my a master's, my PhD research especially was learning about plants that make unusual types of fatty acid structures and how they, how we might discover genes from these plants and then use them to uh, engineer existing oil seed crops like soybean 
to make new types of fatty acids that might have increased industrial value or uh, have more value for food and feed applications. I later worked at DuPont Crop Genetics in uh, Wilmington, Delaware. At that time in the uh, 1990s, there was a big effort to, late 1990s, a big effort to do uh, high throughput sequencing of, uh, of genes and plants, express genes as there is now. And this was kind of the early stages, but we uh, went out and tried to find plants that make unusual types of compounds, especially different types of oils. And we would do uh, DNA sequencing to try to identify and discover new genes that we could use to modify soybean oil. That's really uh, where I got started and really continued that interest as I've come to uh, the University of Nebraska and been very fortunate to uh, partner with groups like the Nebraska Soybean Board that have been very uh, supportive of this type of research. So give us an overview of the this USDA grant, which I think was awarded in 2019, that you and your collaborators received. What's really the essence of it? And uh, tell us also, too, a little bit about the methodology. This grant is led out of uh, Washington State University, and the uh, the PI of the grant is a uh, chemical engineer there, and he's working on new methods to uh, develop to to manufacture jet fuel, bio bio based jet fuel out of uh, vegetable oils and animal fats, and he's trying to improve upon the existing technology that is used to make bio jet fuel. Bio jet fuel is basically jet, jet A fuel is what we're trying to, um, to supplement. And that's a, what we call a kerosene-based type of fuel. And this has carbon chains that vary in chain length from like seven carbons or so up to about 18 or 19 carbons in chain length. And that's what's burned by the jet engine. And so we can sort of replicate this with fatty acids and fatty acids and oils are very energy dense molecules. In fact, probably the most energy dense molecules in nature. The method that's currently used involves taking any kind of uh, vegetable oil or animal fat and breaking them. To, these are typically like 16, 18 carbons, 20 carbons in chain length and breaking them up into smaller pieces that uh, mimic the, uh, the jet fuel, the, the kerosene component of the jet fuel. And uh, this is a very energy intensive process that involves a couple of different re chemical reactors to make it. So yeah, the, the, the problem with the fatty acid is that it has two oxygen atoms and what's burned in a jet engine has no oxygen, it's just straight carbon, carbon chains. And so uh, we need to get rid of the oxygens. The method that my colleague at Washington State is developing is a way to make jet fuel, the kerosene type jet fuel from, uh, from vegetable oils at a lower cost, we think potentially lower cost and maybe using less energy to make them. His method requires just one reactor instead of two reactors. But the limitation is that it really needs a feedstock of fatty acids of vegetable oils that have defined carbon chain lengths his method doesn't break up the fatty acids into smaller pieces as this more energy intensive process that's currently used does. And so we're trying to develop vegetable oils that, that provide a feedstock that just readily, very easily fit into his production system. And so we're modifying the uh, chain lengths of vegetable oils, or the fatty acids of vegetable oils, so that they have a range 
starting from shorter chain lengths, maybe like C8 up to C18. And that would mimic the, uh, the feedstock that's needed for making a, a bio-based jet fuel. Could you also tell us a little bit more about the particular crops and, and vegetables that you're researching that, that you're hoping you know, to unlock the potential of? What we're doing, we call it synthetic biology, but it's really uh, metabolic engineering. So we're taking genes from uh, some plants that make that have very extreme fatty acid profiles that make short chain fatty acids and medium chain length fatty acids that are not normally found in soybean or other oilseed crops. And so uh, we're putting these genes into uh, these oilseed crops to reduce their chain length. We're currently using the plant camelina, which is a, a brassica type of oilseed. So it's related to canola. And uh, we use it in part because it's very easy to do this, we call it metabolic engineering. It's easy to put genes into and you can uh, test genes very quickly. But the technology that we're using can really be used for any oil seed. We can uh, learn how to do this very more, much more quickly in camelina. And then we can transfer this to a crop like soybean and try to create the same types of oils in soybean. But so initially we're working in camelina Longer term, we see uh, other opportunities, whether it could be soybean, but it could also be other oil seeds. So there's just all this swell of interest by a range of actors, the consumers like you and me, trade groups, private equity firms, entrepreneurs, environmentalists, regulators, and then the industry, the airline industry themselves have been, I think to some degree, holding themselves accountable aviation does not represent a, a huge segment of greenhouse gas emissions globally, but um, it is still a substantial factor around two and a half to three percent of global emissions. But it, they're growing, and I think the biggest issue is it's a hard sector to decarbonize. United just announced a big commitment to do 100% greenhouse gas reduction by 2050, but um, they're going to get there through a couple ways. So they say sustainable fuels is a big part, but also direct air capture of carbon emissions is another really big part. I think they've invested a lot of money in that. All this is to say, I guess it tells you and tells us something about the power of jet fuel, uh, which I came across an interesting statistic that in 2019, it was the equivalent to about 14% of the world's, the world's electricity, um, just the amount of jet fuel that was burned you're not going to have 100% of, say, a camelina oil go into, you know, a 747. So tell, talk a little bit about how that actually integrates with existing, existing fuels. As I said, uh, the vegetable oils, the, we call them um, the components, the main component is triacylglycerols or triglycerides. And I think everybody's familiar with triglycerides. These are in nature, this is how we store energy, whether, whether you you're a human or a, a hibernating animal. This is how we condense energy. And uh, this, these oils are the most energy dense molecules in nature, more so than even, even ethanol that you hear about for um, fuel. The energy comes from the carbon-carbon bonds. And if you break them, there's a lot of energy released when that happens. So 
what we're what we're doing to make the uh, biojet fuel. I mean, we don't envision that it's going to replace the entire petroleum-based jet fuel sector, and that it will supplement uh, that that component of um, the jet fuel market. And you know, uh, a vegetable oil-based jet fuel and a petroleum jet fuel. If you look at them, they're you know basically kind of the same molecules. And if you just compare them as in burning, you're going to release the same amount of carbon, you know, greenhouse gases. But when we think about these bio-based jet fuels, we think about a life cycle analysis, you know, starting you know at the farm level, and uh, the energy inputs that goes into creating the, uh, the the vegetable oil. And if you look at that, there are estimates that uh, there that process is, gives you like a 60% or more reduction in the a global uh, greenhouse gas emissions going through that entire life cycle analysis. And so that's really where the, um, we see the benefit, the, the environmental benefit going through the life cycle. It's the intensity of energy that's required to get the traditional petroleum harvested, yeah. so to speak, and yes. then used. But also uh, think about oil that's in the ground as old sunlight. Uh, plants, they basically have one free thing, that's sunlight, and that's driving photosynthesis to make carbon. You need the uh, water inputs and the fertilizer, but the, uh, the sunlight is free. And so that's one component of the equation. So we think about uh, the bio-based bio fuels as being current sunlight, the uh, petroleum as ancient sunlight. So uh, even petroleum came from plants and mostly plants and algae that have fossilized and uh, become petroleum, but it, but this was millions of years ago. <laughs> so let's talk a, a little bit about the bioproducts that could possibly be derived from the crops that you're looking at. One of the things that stuck out to me in reading that initial news release on the UNL website was you make some references to how this could potentially be positive for the rural economy of Nebraska. And I, I just think that's such a fundamental issue to, to making it be palatable to the general public. So just talk a little bit about the bioproducts and then how you see that um, integrating with the local economy. Yeah, so um, we try to think broadly about what we're doing to improve crop value. The uh, If we just focus on the energy sector, it's really, um, based on uh, low cost. I mean, everybody wants to have their uh, gasoline as cheap as possible. The uh, airlines want cheap fuel. And so uh, if we just look at oil seeds for producing uh, energy feedstocks for uh, energy, the economics just don't work because uh, I don't know if you pay attention to commodity prices, they're always changing. Uh, right now, soybean prices are thankfully going up for the farmers. And soybean oil prices are going up, almost have doubled since last spring. And so that really, you know, makes the margins very difficult when you try to be a producer of uh, bio-based fuels. And so we think a little bit broadly, we see the, uh, the oil seed. And, and I should mention that we also have funding from the Department of Energy. We, it's a group called the Center for Advanced Biofuels, Bioproducts Innovation where we're also working with biomass feedstocks like sorghum to increase its value for uh, biofuels. But in both cases, what we're trying to do is find new types of bioproducts. 
that we can produce. We see these plants, whether it's the oil seed or the sorghum plant, as being sort of a, a palette that we can uh, introduce genes to increase, to make compounds that have high value. So for example, we have funding from the Nebraska Soybean Board on aquaculture feed that we're doing, we're doing work in soybean. That's a higher value market. So aquaculture is a growing industry. They need a sustainable feed for that. The current feed comes largely from, uh, from oceans capturing small, lower value fish and getting fish oil and fish meal to feed to the farmed fish. And so we're developing a feedstock, aquaculture feedstock based on soybean that can fit into that market and be sustainable. And the prices for the, the feed that go into that market are much higher than those for biofuels. But we can produce some, kind, some types of compounds that can be um, used for that market. We can also produce the oil for the, the, the fuel market. But if we put enough components together in one seed or in one sorghum plant, the economics start to get positive and start to, uh, you start to see that maybe this bio-based market can work if we have enough components stacked together in a single seed or in a single sorghum plant. Okay, so if we can do that, if we can put uh, five high value products together, maybe with a lower value product like the, the oil for the jet fuel, the economics become positive, but then we have to get, we have to separate all of those components. So we can produce them maybe in the seed or the sorghum plant, and then we need bioprocess processing downstream to separate all of these components into different markets, to different uh, value streams for different markets. And so funding that we have from the uh, Nebraska, the Nebraska Center for uh, Energy Sciences Research is funding a collaboration that we have with the food science department. And so one of the things that we're doing for aquaculture is producing astaxanthin. It's a high value pigment for aquaculture. It gives the salmon its red color one of the most highest value components of uh, aquaculture feed. And uh, we're working with a, a researcher there who does bioprocessing to figure out how to very efficiently extract the, uh, the astaxanthin from the vegetable oil. And so he's developing this technology that then can be scaled up. And then if we can uh, scale it up and do it in a way where we don't need a $100 million processing plant, maybe maybe $5 million plant, who knows? And maybe that can be in a rural setting in Nebraska. And so you could envision a world where we have a Nebraska farmer producing a high value product, a high value soybean, for example, and this has to be processed. And so he takes it or she takes it down the road to the bioprocessing center, you know, built on UNL discovered technology perhaps, and separates and that they separate out all these different components, sell them to different markets. And this creates jobs in the, uh, the rural, area, rural areas of Nebraska, high paying jobs, hopefully, that uh, really, you know, go to increasing the vitality of the communities of, of the state. So you see, you know, in Lincoln and other cities, this bus is powered by 100% soy biodiesel. It's already made inroads in vehicular emissions. What is the chief hindrance then in just putting some of soy oil and mixing that with jet fuel? The 
soybean oil uh, has to be in the right right format, has to be in the right structure for the jet fuel, as we talked about, it has to be of the right chemical nature. But the bigger, the biggest hindrance is really the the cost competitiveness of, of vegetable oils, you know, used solely for biodiesel versus uh, the petroleum-based diesel at, at this point. And that that's why, again, trying to figure out ways to uh, have co-products that have higher value to produce along with the the soybean oil improves that economics. Maybe you can get away with selling the the soybean oil at a lower price if you're producing some other component in the seed that adds enough value for the overall producer to make money. These biofuels that you're researching, could they also be implemented in smaller aircraft that, you know, don't have the energetic requirements of some giant 747? Not so easily because the, the jet fuel is a different type of fuel than the, uh, the fuel that goes into a propeller plane. And uh, yeah, I've, I've done a little bit of looking into that question and, and I'm not an expert in uh, aviation fuel, but the uh, propeller planes, they use something that's closer to gasoline uh, versus the kerosene type of uh, fuel that's used for a jet engine. And so they're really not as compatible so I, I don't think it's going to be quite as easy to make that transition. But anything where, where it involves like a diesel type of fuel, vegetable oils can fit into that quite easily. And even uh, for boats, you know, they use a type of diesel fuel. It's not exactly the same diesel fuel that you use in a tractor or a, a semi, uh, but that's another, you know, potential market for vegetable oil-based diesel fuel. As I was doing some research and reading for this interview, one thing I came across on the internet was the possibility of hydrogen fuel cells to power jets, which you hear talk about that. And actually beyond talk, I mean, they do have hydrogen cars. I know that commercially those are available in California and other places, but are you familiar with this at all? Or have you done some reading and do you see that as impacting your research in any way? To be honest, I, I haven't, but people continue to think that, you know, for the foreseeable future, you know, we may have electric cars, they're coming along pretty quickly, but uh, an electric, you know, jet engine is not really, I don't, I don't think it's on the, in the next five years or 10 years. And I don't think that a, a hydrogen fuel cell will be in that time frame either. So for the, probably for the foreseeable future, it's going to be liquid fuel based. And so I don't really see that immediate time or even in the, maybe the 10 year time horizon as being really a factor for this type of research, you know, but things change and, and we hope that we transition, you know, for our society into uh, more sustainable types of fuels, but we'll, we'll always have some market for uh, soybean and we have to be nimble and we have to think about how things change and we adapt and come up with new types of research and new targets. I do have two last questions. I neglected to put them on the document, so you'll, you'll just have to swing at a couple of curveballs, but you'll do fine. One thing that I thought of to ask you as we were talking was, do you connect in your own mind the research that you're doing to a, a sense of a sense of environmental preservation, you know, a sense of sort of this is something that really does have a potential to help the planet. Yeah, absolutely. 
and, and, and you know, it's always a combination of economics and balance in economics and, uh, and, and saving the environment. You can't do one without the other. You shouldn't do one without the other. But the aquaculture example is a very good, you know, case study, because as I said, this is an industry that historically has not been sustainable. So to feed a high value fish, you have to feed it fish oil and you have to feed it fish meal that come from fish. The way aquaculture has traditionally worked is that the uh, producers, they, they get their, they harvest the fish, low value fish from the ocean. They make oil and meal and feed it to the high value fish. And there's been some estimates and I'm sure the numbers have changed. Uh, at one time, it was like three low value fish for every one high value fish. So this is not a sustainable practice. And so, yeah, with producing fish oil and fish meal substitutes in soybean, that's a way to better the environment and create a more sustainable feedstock for, for this one industry that's, you know, growing hugely. You know, if you go to the supermarket and you want to buy a, a salmon, it's not so common to see that it's wild salmon anymore. It's usually farm-raised salmon. And a salmon, it's oil, as I said, it's, it's oil. We, we, call it, we talk about EPA, DHA, these are fish oils. They, the salmon don't produce them. They get them from the, uh, what they eat. And so we have to supply that and it's a high value. And if you didn't feed the salmon, this red pigment, astaxanthin, the flesh would be white. And so that astaxanthin costs a lot of money to, to, to produce. And so that's a, another sustainable market that we're trying to uh, feed into with the aquaculture research. And we talked uh about the research and sort of where you are currently and looking back, maybe flipping that on its head and sort of where, where would you go from here in a best case scenario? I mean, of course, you, you know, you'd want to scale up. Have you had some initial interest from any kind of private sector investors or forming any kind of a partnership out of this that would be able to commercialize a product? Somewhat, but... And I, I've worked in this area of trying to uh, introduce, to do this metabolic engineering to improve oil quality. And even, you know, when I was working at a large company like DuPont, but uh, it, it seems that the, the large companies, they want to make, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars from every uh, product. And it takes a lot of investment and research and so forth to, to get to a product. And maybe some of our, some of our uh, products won't be you know, in the range that the, uh, the large companies like a Corteva or a Bayer Crop Science wants to take on. And so I think that uh, we have to be a little bit entrepreneurial as uh, researchers and maybe we, we still have a, a little ways to go. We have to improve the traits and the performance of the crops that are engineered with the traits. But I think that, that there is on the horizon a time when uh, this will be at a point where it is ready to go into commercialization, but we may have to take that on, at least initially at ourselves as researchers, we may have to start our own startup company, you know, maybe based at Innovation Campus and uh, maybe uh, using the young talent that we have in Nebraska to start these companies and build something from there. Thank you. Thanks so much for taking some time to join me this afternoon and talk about your, your research. And I think it's a, a really 
not so well understood, but yet very important part of cleaning up carbon emissions from transportation and, and, a, and a growing part of that is through aviation. So thanks for just enlightening us today. Thank, thank you. And uh, it may come across, you know, as you uh, listen back that I, we're all over the place, but that's really the way we think. I mean, we're, it's all, all one system. We just don't focus on bioenergy. We think about the larger portfolio and how we bring value and bioenergy is just one component of that. Thanks for tuning in. My name's Jesse Starita. Like what you heard? Learn more about the podcast and the newly formed Nebraska Environmental Action Organization at enacts.org. The Dew Point is where Nebraskans express who they are and what they believe and do about climate change. Hit the subscribe or follow button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell a friend.